Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 1. <laughs> oh, good morning. It's great to be back in the pulpit. Uh, I had uh, a friend call me just this week. He, he's a, a good friend. Uh, we met, uh, he's come a couple of times over the summer, and he's just committed himself to praying for me. What a gift. Um, and he lives in North Carolina. He calls me this week, and he says, he's, he's got a deep southern accent, by the way. And he's like, preacher, do you still love Jesus? Are you still on fire? Do you love preaching? And I was like, you know, I got to tell you, I do. I really love it. Uh, I will say this, it's less of a chore now. And he's like, what do you mean by that? And I was like, well, here's the thing about preaching. It's kind of like, you know, long distance running. No one runs six miles on the first day and enjoys it very much. It, it takes work and intentionality and time and effort. But once you start running six miles on a regular basis, your body actually starts craving it. And uh, when I'm out of the pulpit, uh, I love sharing the pulpit with Harry, and I love sharing it with Ashraf. I believe it's so important for many voices to affirm the same word of God. It validates the word of God. Uh, but you say, boy, I want to run again. So it's good to run with you this morning. Uh, we're in John chapter 1. This series is Jesus' Conversations. The goal of this series is pretty simple. We want to learn how to share Jesus the way Jesus told people about himself. He is the master evangelist. There's no one better to share uh, or to learn from on this topic. And, and the reason I can say that is because you're all sitting here today, right? He was that effective. We're here today as a result of that. Uh, what I'm going to be doing over the, you know, the next 20 or 30 years of my life, God willing, if I live, is every time that I introduce a sermon series, I'm going to challenge you to memorize uh, some scripture. So for this series, take out your little note card with the names that you wrote on it. Write down the verses, John 3, 16 through 18. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of you got one third of that already. Let's complete it. And thank you for all one of you who memorized the last verse that I challenge you to memorize. I really appreciate that. Um, I'm going to be like a little mosquito in the ear and just encourage this discipline. We'll get into that a little more later, why I think it's so important. Next month, we're going to be going into the Psalms, and I'm going to challenge us to memorize Psalm 1. So if you're a really good student, you can get out ahead and start working on that now. So we're in this series and I got to ask the question, what comes to your mind when you think about the word evangelism? What comes to your mind? Uh, Pastor James is leading the youth group through a series discussing that. He asked this same question to them. And there was a variety of responses. And some of the students had heard the term, but they really weren't sure what it meant at all. Uh, other students were like, you know, I think that's a good thing. We ought to be doing that. And, and some of the students were questioning whether it's socially acceptable to do that anymore. Here's a principle that, that I really believe. Uh, the principle is that you can hear your values when the younger generation speaks. You can hear what you really value when the younger generation speaks. Why? Because they're like an echo of what they've heard from us. So if there's 
no understanding, they're really echoing back that you haven't talked about this. If they feel confused, they're echoing that you've confused this for me. Uh, If they think it's not a really good thing to do, well, they're echoing that that's not in your value system. If they're passionate about it, then you can tell that that may be something that you've really believed. So again, the question is, what comes to your mind when you hear the word evangelism? And I want to suggest two words typically come to mind, fear and guilt. Fear because I'm not doing it because I'm afraid that I'm going to mess it up or that I'm going to get into an argument with someone and guilt because I'm not doing it because I'm scared. Uh, That book, Sharing Jesus with uh, Out Freaking Out, the author says this, that too many Christians continue to equate evangelism with a prepackaged presentation or with asking and answering a particular set of questions, or with trying to win a theological debate. One of the reasons Christians avoid engaging in evangelism, or typically avoid the topic of religion altogether in polite company, is because they fear the resulting discussion will deteriorate into an argument. Now, here's a true statement about human nature. Some people love arguments, Most people loathe them. Quick show of hands. How many find themselves in the loathe camp when it comes to arguing? You know, the first service was exactly the same way. And I got to tell you, when I was a little bit younger of a buck, I loved arguing. But I'm finding myself more in the loathe camp as I grow older. You know, we, we look at that. And if that's our thought process around evangelism, we say, no, thanks. I'm not interested in doing that. I've got better things to do. And I want to submit to you today that that is not how Jesus approached evangelism. His methodology was relational. It was compelling. It was not fear-ridden or guilt-inducing. In fact, what we're going to see today in John chapter 1 is that evangelism is a natural byproduct of discipleship. So let's pick up. We're in John 1. We're going to read about Philip and Nathanael, beginning in verse 43. The text says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip, and he said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So in John chapter 1, what we have here is Jesus beginning his ministry. We're seeing his life, his activity. We're watching him fulfill his own great commission. If you ever ask yourself the question, what's the purpose of the church? What's my individual purpose as a believer? What am I to be about? The great commission is just so simple and clear. It says to us, go and make disciples. You got that? Go and make disciples. It doesn't say go and make Bible study classes. It doesn't say go and make church attenders. It doesn't even say go and make missionaries or converts. It says go and make disciples. And here in John chapter 1 verse 33, that language, follow me, is the explicit language of discipleship. Now, 
when Jesus is asking Philip to do this, he's actually inviting Philip into what is called a rabbinical contract. Disciples understood this, that when they would follow a rabbi, that this would be the expectations. And let's take a look at what the expectations were for this rabbinical contact. First, I'm doing life with you. Second, I'm learning your teaching. I'm even memorizing what you say. I'm going to say it just how you say it. That's why I'm suggesting scripture memory is so important for us as a believer. Third, I am mimicking your way of life. And then fourth, I will transfer this life to others. Let me ask you a question. When you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, did you realize that you were signing up for that? I would suggest many of us did not understand that, but Philip did. And and the readers of the New Testament, as they read the Gospels, they would have understood this, that that is exactly what Jesus was calling these men to do. What I like about this discipleship process, if you will, is that fourth element that I will transfer this life to others. And this helps us to develop a very good definition of discipleship. This is one I found recently that I love. Discipleship is the process where we follow Jesus so that we can become like him for the sake of others. You got that last part? You're not becoming a disciple just so that you can grow personally. It's always heading towards others. And we watch Philip run headlong into this right away in the text. Look at um, verse 45 now. Uh, It tells us that Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus, or Philip said to him, come and see. Now, I want to break this exchange apart a little bit. I I think it's interesting. Uh, First, let's think about Philip, okay? Let me ask you a question around Philip. Did Philip have a seminary degree, or did he need to attend evangelism classes, or did he need to hear like a really creative sermon series called Jesus Conversations before he was ready to go tell Nathaniel about Jesus? What do you think? No, He, he didn't need any of that. In fact, as you look at John chapter one, you realize that there's this principle that emerges. And the principle is that you have all you need to begin sharing Jesus with other people right now. You have all you need. We see in the, the, the first chapter that John the Baptist, he points Andrew towards Jesus, and then Andrew subsequently goes and finds Peter. If you look at the background information on John chapter 1, it, it might be possible because 
Andrew and Peter were both from Bethsaida, that they were actually the ones who brought Philip to Jesus so that he could encounter Jesus. And then what does Philip do? He goes and he finds Nathanael. So if that is all true, then what we have here is every single person who encounters Jesus in John uh, chapter one is brought there by someone else. They are brought to him by someone else. And that's because of our definition of discipleship. It's the process of following him to become like him. What? For the sake of others. Now, here's what we do. We complicate the daylights out of evangelism. Oh my gosh, we make all of these prerequisites before someone can start telling someone else about Jesus. Let me just ask you a couple of questions to see if you meet the prerequisites. Here's the first question. Have you met Jesus and has that changed your life? Yes. Okay, question number two. Do you have a mouth? Okay, question number three. If your answer to number two is no, can you write or sign? Okay, number four. Do you know another person? Here's the deal. If you answered yes to three of those questions, congratulations, you passed Evangelism 101. Now, of course, we can grow and develop and get better at things, but in the scriptures, we see that disciples tell people about Jesus. That's what they do. Now, Philip is so effective. And the reason that he's effective is because he goes to Nathaniel as a satisfied customer, not as a salesman. Now, we know the difference between the two, right? You ever had that friend that purchased a new car and they're so excited about it? And they come up to you and they're like, oh boy, This car is awesome. I mean, it's got everything fully loaded. I love how it just drives. It's so smooth. The temperature temperature control. I mean, my wife, she likes it to be like a sauna on her side. I want it to be like an icebox. And somehow this vehicle makes us both feel comfortable. And don't even get me started on the fuel economy. That's what a satisfied customer sounds like. They're just telling you that they've had a great experience and they're passing that along. And you hear that from Nathaniel or Philip as he goes and he talks to Nathaniel. Now, Nathaniel's response is interesting. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know what? He sounds like a New Englander to me. (laughs) I love that. Practical to a fault slightly cynical, never gullible. Oh, Philip, are you serious right now? Are you you drinking that Kool-Aid? I'm sure you're all excited about this Jesus guy. And perhaps there's two reasons why Nathaniel feels this way. The first reason is because there was a lot of messianic pretenders in the Galilee region. His motto for life was, Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. The second reason is he had a bias towards Nazareth. I mean, he knew. He just knew that no one of significance came from Nazareth. And let me tell you this. I believe that there's a little bit of Nathaniel in all of us. See, I want you to imagine with me that there's just like a big whiteboard 
And this whiteboard represents an individual's, you know, beliefs, their values, or what we would say is their, their worldview. And when a person comes into a dynamic where they're hearing about Jesus for the first time, that board is never blank. It's always filled with things. It's filled with biases, misunderstandings, opinions, objections, quotations, things that they heard on Twitter and saw on YouTube and all of that kind of stuff. Some people might have some ideas on their whiteboard about Jesus. Some people have no ideas. In the case of Nathaniel, his whiteboard was filled with thoughts of pretenders and local biases. But what about today? What are people's whiteboards filled with today? You know, it was a while ago, it was when I was in youth ministry that I started realizing that I didn't really, you know, that we're not in Kansas anymore when it came to kind of spiritual matters and spiritual conversations, uh, that I needed to slow down with people. Uh, I first realized that I was giving a lesson on Moses. And one of the kids is trying to be funny, and he raises his hand, and he blurts out, and he's like, you know, I've heard about that guy before in history class. What did he do again? And I got to tell you, he was not, like, he was being funny, but he really meant that. And, and I was just, what? I'd grown up in the church. I'd grown up in a pastor's home. I didn't have any category in my head for someone that had never heard of Moses before. Let me tell you another story. I'm in a Bible study. There was a young lady that was exploring faith at our church. She was 20 or 22 years old. We're talking about just the basics of the gospel she stops me mid-sentence, and she says, you keep talking about this Garden of Eden place. What is that? Let me ask you a question. Did they do anything wrong? No. They just didn't have that information on their whiteboard. But I think we need to ask ourselves a deeper question, which is, do you suspect that a student that doesn't know anything about Moses or a young lady that's never even heard of the, uh, the Garden of Eden, do you think that they're going to connect the spiritual dots of salvation in a single conversation? I think we're fooling ourselves if we believe that. Now, there are people who are ready. They're right there spiritually. I, I heard a good uh, analogy recently. It was contrasting evangelism from 40 years ago with evangelism from today. And this analogy was envisioning a puzzle. And, you know, people 40 years ago, they were saying they had all the puzzle pieces to build the gospel framework puzzle. They could you know, grab from their understanding of the Bible and the theological terms such as sin and forgiveness and the cross and grace and those types of things. So, so 40 years ago, gospel presentations, tracts, those types of things were highly effective because it was like taking the front of the puzzle box and showing them the picture for them to complete the puzzle. And today, when you interface with people. Some of them don't have many of the puzzle pieces. Some of them have puzzle pieces from other box that are not going to fit into the puzzle as much as they try to cram them in there. 
So we've got to start being adaptable with our evangelism style is what I'm suggesting here this morning. I think gospel presentations are still very helpful and useful, but we've got to learn to understand what puzzle pieces people have and what they do not have. You'll notice that Philip is very adaptable in his conversation. You know, he's this satisfied customer, right? He's just given Jesus a five-star review on Amazon, a glowing review. And then Nathaniel comes back with this cynical response. And Philip, he doesn't feel badly about that because he's a satisfied customer. He doesn't have anything to gain or lose if Nathaniel doesn't believe him. Instead, what he says is, come and see. In other words, Nathaniel, you don't believe me? Let's go for a test drive and check this thing out. I love that language, come and see in the Gospels. You know, the best thing that we can do in evangelism, from my perspective, is we should view evangelism as inviting the people we know to have an authentic encounter with the living Jesus. That's the most effective thing you can do. Now, Jesus isn't physically with us today. I can't walk someone directly up to Jesus, but we do have the scriptures. Hebrews chapter 4 says that the word of God is living and active. I believe that people can meet the living Jesus in the word of God. I love Harry's approach where he challenges individuals to read John's gospel and ask them to pray daily for God to speak to them through the word of God. I believe that that's how we say, come and see today. And watch Jesus work. He is very good at what he does. As we see him interface with Nathaniel, look at what he says to him. Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Now, what Jesus is doing here is he's creating a contrast between Nathaniel and the Old Testament patriarch, Jacob. Uh, you might uh, know this about Jacob's story, but he was a manipulator and a trickster. You remember that? In fact, Jacob's name meant trickster. As a way of life, he manipulated people to get what he wanted. And God had to wrestle that out of him. And boy, did he wrestle that out of him. And, and once God had dealt with that piece of his character, then he changed Jacob's name to Israel. Now, we could paraphrase what Jesus said to Nathaniel like this. Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. You are the ideal Israelite, Nathaniel, there's not that manipulative bent in you. Now, Jesus could have, you know, approached Nathaniel in a different way. He could have said, you know, I'm a prophet. Heard what you said back there about my hometown, but he doesn't approach it like that. What does he do? He affirms what is good in Nathaniel, what should be affirmed. He's basically saying, you're the kind of guy who means what he says, and that's a good thing. Like I said, he's a good New Englander. I've been in other parts of the country where, you know, people smile at you and stab you in the back at the same time. New England's different. You see the knife coming the entire way. <laughs> he's affirming. I heard a doctrinal student share some of her insights in engaging the younger generation, and I felt like she made a salient point 
You know, she was talking about Gen Z and Gen Alpha, and I'm really sorry to all you millennials out there, you're now old people, you know, just be comfortable with that. It's Gen Z and Gen Alpha now. And she said, you know, you're not going to win this young generation if you can't affirm anything good in them. And let me tell you this, sometimes young people enter the church and they hear broad brush statements made about their generation. Like these young people today, they don't care about the truth. These young people today, they're turning away from God. Now, you know, that goes both ways. I get that with the generational lines, and that's happened all throughout history. But it's not winsome or effective to not acknowledge or see the good in others. Jesus is doing that right here with Nathaniel. What do you see that is good in the younger generation. And if you're saying to yourself, well, I don't see anything good, that's a problem, and you need to go have a conversation with a grandmother, okay? Why do you need to have a conversation with grandma? Well, grandma loves her grandkids, so she sees the good in them because she sees them through the eyes of love. Grandmothers can wax eloquent about how good their grandkids are. And I believe that if we are going to share Jesus with people as effectively as Jesus did, we are going to need to see people with his eyes. Nathaniel is caught off guard by this. How do you know me? I think he prided himself on being an honest man. I think he had worked hard for that piece of his character. I mean, when someone speaks a deep value into you, that they've just seen that quality into you, that grabs your attention. It, it strikes a nerve within you. So he's all ears now, and then Jesus just takes the amazement to the next level. He says, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now Nathanael answers him, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. I love this exchange right now. I mean, he moves from this like cynical person to number one fan in like two sentences. And he bombards Jesus with titles. Rabbi, son of God, king of Israel. I mean, he sounds like a Patriots fan towards Bill Belichick. <laughs> it's incredible. And what does he understand about Jesus? I don't know. I don't, I don't believe that he understands that Jesus is omniscient or that he's a prophet. Uh, or I, I think he does think he's a prophet. I think he might think he's the Messiah with the titles that he's using here. But he understood that Jesus saw a special encounter that he had had with God. You see, in this day, when a person was at a fig tree, it most likely meant that they were having devotionals, that they were connecting with God. And Jesus is like, I saw that moment. So Nathaniel is touched because he's experiencing right now in this moment the power of God at work. And I believe that people, if they're going to move into the faith, that they need to have a real encounter with the power of God. I ask yourself the question, well, how do I give someone else the 
the power and encounter with the power of God, well, I don't think I can go up to someone today and say, hey, I saw you in your private moment. We call that stalking. That doesn't lead to heart change. That leads to restraining orders, right? But scripture tells me repeatedly, walk by the spirit. Walk by the spirit. Why am I walking by the spirit? Well, I'm walking by the spirit so that the power of God might be demonstrated through my life, through my words, through my actions. I pray regularly, Lord, as I'm speaking with this person, would it be as if Jesus was speaking to them right now? Would you do that work in me? I've had people say to me in those powerful exchanges, I don't know how you knew that about my life, but I think I, I sensed the voice of God as you spoke those words. There's nothing special about me. Uh, we're all as believers given access to the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God. And if we are walking in step with the Holy Spirit, I believe people will have encounters with the power of God in this way. Now, Jesus, interestingly enough, doesn't leave it there. And Nathaniel's in awe because he's just experienced a minor miracle. But Jesus moves from an encounter with the power of God to compelling Nathaniel with a spiritual vision. Look at the last two verses in this pericope, verse 50, 51. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Isn't it interesting that a second time Jesus makes an allusion to the life of Jacob? Now we're in chapter 28 of the book of Genesis. And if, you don't, if you're not familiar with that story, Jacob has just deeply betrayed his family. He's robbed his brother Esau of his blessing as the right of the firstborn son. That is a huge no-no. He has burned all of his bridges. He is on the run because Esau wants his blood. And we know it's a frantic run because if you measure the distance from where he starts to where he winds up in the first day, he has traveled 43 miles. That is an aggressive pace. I don't know what your definition of a bad day is, but I think this qualifies. He's worn out, exhausted. He's in this barren place filled with rocks. And then Genesis chapter 28, verse 11 tells us this. If we can get the scripture, please. Thank you. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set Taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Now, again, bad day. Uh, Jacob has literally and figuratively made the bed that he's sleeping in right now. He's been living this manipulative life. And what's incredible in this moment is that God shows up. God shows Jacob that he loves him. And he gives him this compelling spiritual vision in verse 12. It says, And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, 
and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending. And I believe that in this vision, God was saying many things to Jacob. One, you're not alone, Jacob. I'm with you. I'm always present in your life. I think that he was telling him, Jacob, there is literally traffic between heaven and earth that is on your behalf at all times because I see you, I know you, I'm with you. Friends, that is a compelling spiritual vision. We need more than just a simple encounter with the the power of God. We need a compelling vision to recognize that heaven and earth are perpetually connected because God is doing business on our behalf. God knows us. God cares. God is present. And that is what Jesus is saying to Nathaniel. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't make any mention of the latter. He talks about the Son of Man. He talks about the traffic between heaven and earth. And I believe he doesn't mention the latter because Jesus is saying implicitly to Nathaniel, guess what, buddy? I'm the latter. I'm the connection, the connection between heaven and earth, the, the nexus point, if you will. That if you want to meet the living God, you've got to go through me. Now, when it comes to our evangelism, of course, we need to understand two things from this passage First, we need to understand that our witnessing must focus then on the centrality of Christ. If he is the mediator between God and man, if he is the latter, if Acts 4.12 is correct when it says that there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which men must be saved, that he's God's only solution for our sin problem, then Christ must be central in all of our conversations, our spiritual conversations. I also want you to understand that our witnessing must provide a compelling spiritual vision. You know, as Nathaniel, uh, you know, responds to Jesus, Jesus elevates the conversation. He says, you're going to see greater things than this. And what are these greater things that he's talking about? Well, I believe that it's heavenly things And not heavenly things that are meant to be experienced after you die, but heavenly things that are meant to be experienced here and now. Kent Hughes said that all who are in Christ live in the suburbs of heaven. Do you realize that? You're living in the suburbs of heaven right now. The suburbs are good. There's a little bit of a commute sometimes, but they're good. Paul expresses this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. Did you hear that from it piece? We're already citizens of heaven. We're to be living out that citizenship, experiencing it fully in our lives. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, the apostle says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Again, not blessings to come, but blessings for right now. And I've come to believe, and I'm convinced that maybe one reason we're not telling people about Jesus 
or we're not telling them about Jesus in a convincing manner is because we ourselves are not compelled by the spiritual vision. Uh, We are more like Jacob before the dream than Jacob after the dream. After the dream, Jacob says, behold, God was in this place and I knew it not. We live in a world with a worldview and it's a strong worldview. It's a de-supernaturalized worldview. What does that mean? Well, it means that we interface with the world as materialists. Okay, I'm not trying to give you a PhD this morning. I'll explain that. Materialism just means that I only believe something if I can touch it, taste it, see it. And if I operate like that in life, and let me just tell you, Christians do too, then God is going to be present, but I'm not going to realize it. I'm going to go to work, and I'm not going to know he's there. I'm going to go to school and not know that he's present. I'm going to be in personal relationships with people, and I'm not going to see him there. I'm even going to bring that mentality into the church, and when I'm singing and worshiping and praying, I'm not really sensing the presence of God with me in tangible ways. Now, Kent Hughes, he says, if we bring that mentality in, then our Christianity becomes an empty monochromatic, which means, you know, black and white, essentially, Christianity that is not interesting to the world or to us. So if you want people around you to be interested in Jesus, you have to cast a more compelling vision with your life. And you will only cast that vision if you sense that the kingdom of heaven is all around you. You have to sense it. You have to sense that you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and that citizenship is right now in this place. People are not compelled by lifeless, shapeless, colorless Christianity. So what kind of Christianity do they need to see? Well, I believe they need to see a three-dimensional Christianity. 3D has height, depth, and width. Height, when I think of that, I think of someone being stretched in their faith. When is the last time that you have let God stretch you in your faith where you did something uncomfortable because you believed God wanted you to do it? Uh, When's the last time that you did something bold for Jesus? When's the last time that you memorized a, a larger passage of scripture because you wanted to have something more deeply rooted in your heart about the character of God? When's the last time you went through an extended fast or something like that because you don't want to just hunger for bread on earth, but you want to hunger for him and his presence? Depth is different. Depth depth involves submission. And and every part of the Christian's life is to be submitted to Christ. We read that all over the scriptures. We must invite him into everything. Everything whether it's work or our calendar or our entertainment, and yes, even our bank account. I'm just going to have to be honest with you as your pastor this morning on that bank account. 
I have received more pushback when it comes to money in the 15 plus years that I've been a pastor from Christians than anything else. I mean, I could talk about anything from the pulpit, but all of a sudden, when we start talking about money, all of a sudden, it's like, well, the church wants something from me. Is that really it? Does the church want something from us? You know, I, I think we can't hold this part back if we're really going to live the 3D life. A lot of us got baptized this way. We still thought the money was ours. We didn't realize that we had moved from, you know, a little uh, despot king over our own little kingdom to a steward of God. And I'll tell you this too. People know when there's a lack of depth. They know when you're holding things back that you're not fully convinced and they want to see a fully convinced person and that's what compels people. Let's go to the last one. Width. Width involves duration. People want to see a believer who follows Jesus for a lifetime and through it all. Now, that's why we have words in Scripture like perseverance, faithfulness, endurance. People want to see something that is real. They're craving something that is real in this world. And the only way that I can communicate to someone else that I believe, that I'm convinced that Jesus is real is by sticking with him through thick and thin. Friends, I got to tell you, people are starved for 3D Christians. They've had enough of the monochromatic. They want to see height and depth and width and we, if we follow him closely as disciples, get the privilege of sharing that compelling vision with others. Let's pray together. I want to pray a prayer that we should be praying regularly as we ask God to use us for the sake of others. So I encourage you, pray this often in your own way. God, I know you love people. Give me an opportunity today to help someone see your love for them and hear of how they can enjoy your work in Jesus Christ. Give me the boldness to talk with them about Jesus. Amen.